Did you know that Another World Audiobooks is also on YouTube? If you want to listen to the past books, you can go back on the podcast feed, or you can find the whole entire unabridged audiobooks in one chunk there on the YouTube channel. Just search Another World Audiobooks, and I believe the channel pops right up, or the link is also in the show notes or on the blog. We're continuing on with the story of Tarzan. Hope you guys are enjoying it so far. I know I'm enjoying reading it, so I hope you guys are enjoying listening to it. Remember, if you're enjoying Another World Audiobooks, the best thing you can do for the podcast is just to tell somebody about it. So who do you know who might enjoy a free audiobook? Tell them about it, because good things are meant to be shared. But enough of that. Without further ado, I give you Tarzan. Chapter 11. King of the Apes It was not yet dark when he reached the tribe, though he stopped to exhume and devour the remains of the wild boar he had cached the previous day, and again to take Kalonga's bow and arrows from the treetop in which he had hidden them. It was a well-laden Tarzan who dropped from the branches into the midst of the tribe of Kerchak. With swelling chest, he narrated the glories of his adventure and exhibited the spoils of conquest. Kerchak grunted and turned away, for he was jealous of this strange member of his band— in his little evil brain, he sought for some excuse to wreak his hatred upon Tarzan. The next day, Tarzan was practicing with his bow and arrows at the first gleam of dawn. At first, he lost nearly every bolt he shot, but finally, he learned to guide the little shafts with fair accuracy, and ere a month had passed, he was no mean shot. But his proficiency had cost him nearly his entire supply of arrows. The tribe continued to find the hunting good in the vicinity of the beach— and so Tarzan of the Apes varied his archery practice with further investigation of his father's choice, though little store of books. It was during this period that the young English lord found hidden in the back of one of the cupboards in the cabin a small metal box. The key was in the lock, and a few moments of investigation and experimentation were rewarded with successful opening of the receptacle. In it he found a faded photograph of a smooth-faced young man, a golden locket, studded with diamonds, linked to a small gold chain, a few letters, and a small book. Tarzan examined these all minutely. The photograph he liked most of all, for the eyes were smiling, and the face was open and frank. It was his father. The locket, too, took his fancy, and he placed the chain about his neck, in imitation of the ornamentation he had seen to be so common among the black men he had visited. The brilliant stones gleamed strangely against his smooth brown hide— the letters he could scarcely decipher, for he had learned little or nothing of script, so he put them back in the box with the photograph, and turned his attention to the book. This was almost entirely filled with fine script, but while the little bugs were all familiar to him, their arrangement and the combination in which they occurred was strange and entirely incomprehensible. Tarzan had long since learned the use of the dictionary, but much to his sorrow and perplexity, it proved to no avail to him in this emergency— not a word of all that was written in the book could he find, and so he put it back in the metal box, but with a determination to work out the mysteries of it later on. Little did he know that this book held between its covers the key to his origin, the answer to the strange riddle of his strange life. It was the diary of John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, kept in French, as had always been his custom. Tarzan replaced the box in the cupboard, but always thereafter he carried the features of the strong, smiling face of his father in his heart, and in his head a fixed determination to solve the mystery of the strange words in the little black book. At present he had more important business in hand, for his supply of arrows was exhausted, and he must needs journey to the black men's village and renew it. Early the following morning he set out, and, travelling rapidly, he came before midday to the clearing— 
Once more, he took up his position in the great tree, and, as before, he saw the women in the fields in the village street, and the cauldron of bubbling poison directly beneath him. For hours he lay awaiting his opportunity to drop down unseen and gather up the arrows for which he had come, but nothing now occurred to call the villagers away from their homes. The day wore on, and still Tarzan of the Apes crouched above the unsuspecting woman at the cauldron. Presently the workers in the fields returned. The hunting warriors emerged from the forest, and when all were within the palisade, the gates were closed and barred. Many cooking pots were now in evidence about the village. Before each hut a woman presided over a boiling stew, while little cakes of plantain and cassava puddings were to be seen on every hand. Suddenly there came a hail from the edge of the clearing. Tarzan looked. It was a party of belated hunters returning from the north, and among them they half-led, half-carried a struggling animal. As they approached the village, the gates were thrown open to admit them, and then, as the people saw the victim of the chase, a savage cry rose to the heavens. For the quarry was a man. As he was dragged, still resisting, into the village street, the women and children set upon him with sticks and stones, and Tarzan of the ape, young and savage beast of the jungle, wondered at the cruel brutality of his own kind. Sheeta, the leopard, alone in all the jungle folk, tortured his prey. The ethics of all the others meted a quick and merciful death to their victims. Tarzan had learned from his books, but scattered fragments of the ways of human beings. When he had followed Kalunga through the forest, he had expected to come to a city of strange houses on wheels, puffing clouds of black smoke from a huge tree stuck in the roof of one of them, or to a sea covered with mighty floating buildings, which he had learned were called variously ships and boats and steamers and craft. He had been sorely disappointed with the poor little village of the blacks, hidden away in his own jungle, and with not a single house as large as his own cabin upon the distant beach. He saw that these people were more wicked than his own apes, and as savage and cruel as Sabor herself. Tarzan began to hold his own kind in low esteem. Now, they had tied their poor victim to a great post near the centre of the village, directly before Mubonga's hut, and here they formed a dancing, yelling circle of warriors about him, alive with flashing knives and menacing spears. In a larger circle squatted the women, yelling and beating upon drums. It reminded Tarzan of the dum-dum, and so he knew what to expect. He wondered if they would spring upon their meat while it was still alive. The apes did not do such things as that. The circle of warriors about the cringing captive drew closer and closer to their prey, as they danced in wild and savage abandon to the maddening music of their drums. Presently, a spear reached out and pricked the victim. It was a signal for fifty others. Eyes, ears, arms, and legs were pierced. Every inch of the poor writhing body that did not cover a vital organ became the target of the cruel lances. The women and children shrieked in delight. The warriors licked their hideous lips in anticipation of the feast to come, and vied with one another in the savagery and loathsomeness of the cruel indignities with which they tortured the still-conscious prisoner. Then it was that Tarzan of the Apes saw his chance. All eyes were fixed upon this thrilling spectacle at the stake. The light of day had given place to the darkness of a moonless night, and only the fires in the immediate vicinity of the orgy had been kept alight to cast a restless glow upon the restless scene. Gently, the lithe boy dropped to the soft earth at the end of the village street. Quickly, he gathered up the arrows, all of them this time, for he had brought a number of long fibres to bind them in a bundle. Without haste, he wrapped them securely, and then... Ere he turned to leave, the devil of capriciousness entered his heart. He looked about for some hint of a wild prank to play upon these strange, grotesque creatures, that they might be again aware of his presence among them. Dropping his bundle of arrows at the foot of the tree, 
Tarzan crept among the shadows at the side of the street until he came to the same hut he had entered on the occasion of his first visit. Inside, all was darkness, but his groping hands soon found the object of which he sought, and without further delay, he turned again toward the door. He had taken but a step, however, ere his quick ear caught the sound of approaching footsteps immediately without, and in another instant the figure of a woman darkened the entrance of the hut. Tarzan drew back instantly to the far wall, and his hand saw the long, keen hunting knife of his father. The woman drew quickly to the center of the hut. There she paused for an instant, feeling about with her hands for the things she sought. Evidently, it was not in its accustomed place, for she explored ever nearer and nearer the wall where Tarzan stood. So close was she now that the ape-man felt the animal warmth of her naked body. Up went the hunting knife, and then the woman turned to one side, and soon a guttural awe proclaimed that her search had at last been successful. Immediately she turned and left the hut, and as she passed through the doorway, Tarzan saw that she carried a cooking-pot in her hand. He followed closely after her, and as he reconnoitred from the shadows of the doorway, he saw that all the women of the village were hastening to and from the various huts with pots and kettles. These they were filling with water, and placing over a number of fires near the stake where the dying victim now hung, an inert and bloody mass of suffering. Choosing a moment when none seemed near, Tarzan hastened to his bundle of arrows beneath the great tree at the end of the village street. As on the former occasion, he overthrew the cauldron before leaping, sinuous and cat-like, into the lower branches of the forest giant. Silently, he climbed to a great height until he found a point where he could look through a leafy opening upon the scene beneath him. The women were now preparing the prisoner for their cooking pots, while the men stood about resting after the fatigue of their mad revel. Comparative quiet reigned in the village. Tarzan raised aloft the thing he had pilfered from the hut, and, with aim made true by years of fruit and coconut throwing, launched it toward the group of savages. Squarely among them it fell, striking one of the warriors full upon the head and felling him to the ground. Then it rolled among the women and stopped beside the half-budgered thing they were preparing to feast upon. All gazed in consternation at it for an instant, and then, in one accord, broke and ran for their huts. It was a grinning human skull, which looked up at them from the ground. The dropping of the thing out of the open sky was a miracle well aimed to work upon their superstitious fears. Thus Tarzan of the Apes left them filled with terror at this new manifestation of the presence of some unseen and unearthly evil power which lurked in the forest about their village. Later, when they discovered the overturned cauldron, and that once more their arrows had been pilfered, it commenced to dawn upon them that they had defended some great god by placing their village in this part of the jungle without propitiating him. From then on, an offering of food was daily placed below the great tree from whence the arrows had disappeared, in an effort to conciliate the Mighty One. But the seed of fear was deep sown, and had he but known it, Tarzan of the Apes had laid the foundation for much future misery for himself and his tribe. That night he slept in the forest not far from the village, and early the next morning set out slowly on his homeward march, hunting as he travelled. Only a few berries and an occasional grubworm rewarded his search, and he was half famished when, looking up from a log he had been rooting beneath, he saw Sabor, the lioness, standing in the centre of the trail not twenty paces from him. The great yellow eyes were fixed upon him with a wicked and baleful gleam, and the red tongue licked the longing lips as Sabor crouched, worming her stealthy way with belly flattened against the earth. Tarzan did not attempt to escape. He welcomed the opportunity for which, in fact, he had been searching for days past, now that he was armed with something more than a rope of grass. Quickly, he unslung his bow and fitted a well-daubed arrow, and, as Sabor sprang, the tiny missile leaped to meet her in mid-air. 
At the same instant, Tarzan of the Apes jumped to one side, and as the great cat struck the ground beyond him, another death-tipped arrow sunk deep into Sabor's loin. With a mighty roar, the beast turned and charged once more, only to be met with a third arrow full in one eye. But this time, she was too close to the ape-man for the latter to sidestep the onrushing body. Tarzan of the Apes went down beneath the great body of his enemy, but with a gleaming knife drawn and striking home. For a moment, they lay there. And then, Tarzan realized that the inert mass lying upon him was beyond power ever again to injure man or ape. With difficulty, he wriggled from beneath the great weight, and as he stood erect and gazed down upon the trophy of his skill, a mighty wave of exultation swept over him. With swelling breast, he placed a foot upon the body of his powerful enemy, and throwing back his fine young head, roared out the awful challenge of the victorious bull-ape. The forest echoed to the savage and triumphant cry. Birds fell silent, and the larger animals and beasts of prey slunk stealthily away, for few there were of all the jungle who sought for trouble with the great anthropoids. And in London, another Lord Greystoke was speaking to his kind in the House of Lords, but none trembled at the sound of his soft voice. Sabor proved unsavory eating, even to Tarzan of the Apes, but hunger served as a most efficacious disguise to toughness and rank taste, and ere long, with well-filled stomach, the ape-man was ready to sleep again. First, however, he must remove the hide, for it was as much for this as for any other purpose that he had desired to destroy Sabor. Deftly he removed the great pelt, for he had practiced often on smaller animals. When the task was finished, he carried his trophy to the fork of a high tree, and there, curling himself securely in a crotch, he fell into a deep and dreamless slumber. What with loss of sleep, arduous exercise, and a full belly, Tarzan of the Apes slept the sun around, awakening about noon of the following day. He straightway repaired to the carcass of Sabor, but was angered to find the bones picked clean by other hungry denizens of the jungle. Half an hour's leisurely progress through the forest brought to sight a young deer, and before the little creature knew that an enemy was near, a tiny arrow had lodged in its neck. So quickly the virus worked that at the end of a dozen leaps the deer plunged headlong into the undergrowth, dead. Again did Tarzan feast well, but this time he did not sleep. Instead, he hastened on toward the point where he had left the tribe, and when he had found them, proudly exhibited the skin of Sabor the lioness. Look! he cried. Apes of Kerchak, see what Tarzan, the mighty killer, has done. Who else among you has ever killed one of Numa's people? Tarzan is mightiest among you, for Tarzan is no ape. Tarzan is... But here he stopped, for in the language of the anthropoids there was no word for man, and Tarzan could only write the word in English. He could not pronounce it. The tribe had gathered about to look upon the proof of his wondrous prowess, and to listen to his words. Only Kerchak hung back, nursing his hatred and his rage. Suddenly, something snapped in the wicked little brain of the anthropoid. With a frightful roar, the great beast sprang among the assemblage. Biting and striking with huge hands, he killed and maimed a dozen ere the balance could escape to the upper terraces of the forest. Frothing and shrieking in the insanity of his fury, Kerchak looked about for the object of his greatest hatred, and there, upon a nearby limb, he saw him sitting. "'Come down, Tarzan, great killer!' cried Kerchak. "'Come down, and feel the fangs of a greater! Do mighty fighters fly to the trees at the first approach of danger?' And then Kerchak emitted the volleying challenge of his kind. Quietly, Tarzan dropped to the ground. Breathlessly, the tribe watched from their lofty perches, as Kerchak, still roaring, charged the relatively puny figure. 
Nearly seven feet stood Kerchak on his short legs. His enormous shoulders were bunched and rounded with huge muscles. The back of his short neck was a single lump of iron sinew which bulged beyond the base of his skull, so that his head seemed like a small ball protruding from a huge mountain of flesh. His back drawn, snarling lips exposing his great fighting fangs, and his little, wicked bloodshot eyes gleamed in horrid reflection of his madness. Awaiting him stood Tarzan, himself a mighty muscled animal, but his six feet of height and his great rolling sinews seemed pitifully inadequate to the ordeal which awaited him. His bow and arrows lay some distance away where he had dropped them while showing Sabor's hide to his fellow apes, so that he confronted Kerchak now with only his hunting knife and his superior intellect to offset the ferocious strength of his enemy. As his antagonist came roaring toward him, Lord Greystoke tore his long knife from its sheath, and with an answering challenge as horrid and blood-curdling as that of the beast he faced, rushed swiftly to meet the attack. He was too shrewd to allow those long hairy arms to encircle him, and just as their bodies were about to crash together, Tarzan of the Apes grasped one of the huge wrists of his assailant, and, springing lightly to one side, drove his knife to the hilt into Kerchak's body, below the heart. Before he could wrench the blade free again, the bull's quick lunge to seize him into those awful arms had torn the weapon from Tarzan's grasp. Kerchak aimed a terrific blow at the ape-man's head with the flat of his hand, a blow which, had it landed, might easily have crushed in the side of Tarzan's skull. The man was too quick, and, ducking beneath it, himself delivered a mighty one with clenched fists into the pit of Kerchak's stomach. The ape was staggered, and what with the mortal wound in his side had almost collapsed, when, with one mighty effort, he rallied for an instant, just long enough to enable him to wrestle his arm free from Tarzan's grasp and close in a terrific clinch with his wiry opponent. Straining the ape-man close to him, his great jaws sought Tarzan's throat, but the young lord's sinewy fingers were at Kerchak's own before the cruel fangs could close on the sleek brown skin. Thus they struggled the one to crush out his opponent's life with those awful teeth, the other to close forever the windpipe beneath his strong grasp while he held the snarling mouth from him. The greater strength of the ape was slowly prevailing, and the teeth of the straining beast were scarce an inch from Tarzan's throat when, with a shuddering tremor, the great body stiffened for an instant and then sank limply to the ground. Kerchak was dead. Withdrawing the knife that had so often rendered him master of far mightier muscles than his own, Tarzan of the Apes placed his foot upon the neck of his vanquished enemy, and, once again, loud through the forest rang the fierce, wild cry of the Conqueror. And thus came the young Lord Greystoke into the kingship of the Apes. Chapter 12 Man's Reason There was one of the tribe of Tarzan who questioned his authority, and that was Turkoz the son of Tublat, but he so feared the keen knife and the deadly arrows of his new lord that he confined the manifestation of his objections to petty disobediences and irritating mannerisms. Tarzan knew, however, that he but waited his opportunity to wrest the kingship from him by some sudden stroke of treachery, and so he was ever on his guard against surprise. For months, the life of the little band went on much as it had before, except that Tarzan's greater intelligence and his ability as a hunter were the means of providing for them more bountifully than ever before. Most of them, therefore, were more than content with the change in rulers. Tarzan led them by night to the fields of the black men, and there, warned by their chief's superior wisdom, they ate only what they required, nor ever did they destroy what they could not eat, as is the way of Manu, the monkey, and most apes. 
So, while the blacks were wroth at the continued pilfering of their fields, they were not discouraged in their efforts to cultivate the land, as would have been the case had Tarzan permitted his people to lay waste the plantation wantonly. During this period, Tarzan paid many nocturnal visits to the village, where he often renewed his supply of arrows. He soon noticed the food always standing at the foot of the tree, which was his avenue into the palisade, and, after a little, he commenced to eat whatever the blacks put there. When the awestruck savages saw that the food disappeared overnight, they were filled with consternation and dread, for it was one thing to put food out to propitiate a god or a devil, but quite another to have the spirit really come into the village and eat it. Such a thing was unheard of, and it clouded their superstitious minds with all manner of vague fears. Nor was this all. The periodic disappearance of their arrows, and the strange pranks perpetrated by unseen hands, had wrought them to such a state that life had become a venerable burden in their new home, and now it was that Mubonga and his head men began to talk of abandoning the village and seeking a site farther on in the jungle. Presently the black warriors began to strike farther and farther south, into the heart of the forest when they went to hunt, looking for a site for a new village. More often was the tribe of Tarzan disturbed by these wandering huntsmen. Now was the quiet, fierce solitude of the primeval forest broken by new, strange cries. No longer was there safety for bird or beast. Man had come. Other animals passed up and down the jungle by day and by night, fierce, cruel beasts, but their weakened neighbors only fled from their immediate vicinity to return again when the danger was past. With man, it is different. When he comes, many of the larger animals instinctively leave the district entirely, seldom, if ever, to return. And thus it has always been with the great anthropoids. They flee man as man flees a pestilence. For a short time, the tribe of Tarzan lingered in the vicinity of the beach because their new chief hated the thought of leaving the treasured content of the little cabin forever. But when one day a member of the tribe discovered the blacks in great numbers on the banks of a little stream that had been their watering place for generations, and in the act of clearing a space in the jungle and erecting many huts, the apes would remain no longer. And so Tarzan led them inland for many marches to a spot as yet undefiled by the foot of a human being. Once every moon, Tarzan would go swinging rapidly back through the swaying branches to have a day with his books, and to replenish his supply of arrows. This latter task was becoming more and more difficult, for the blacks had taken to hiding their supply away at night in granaries and living huts. This necessitated watching by day on Tarzan's part to discover where the arrows were being concealed. Twice had he entered the huts at night, while the inmates lay sleeping upon their mats, and stolen the arrows from the very sides of the warriors. But this method he realized to be too fraught with danger, and so he commenced picking up solitary hunters with his long, deadly noose, stripping them of weapons and ornaments, and dropping their bodies from a high tree into the village street during the still watches of the night. These various escapades again so terrorized the blacks that, had it not been for the monthly respite between Tarzan's visits, in which they had opportunity to renew hope that each fresh incursion would prove the last, they soon would have abandoned their new village. The blacks had not yet come upon Tarzan's cabin on the distant beach, but the ape-man lived in constant dread that, while he was away with the tribe, they would discover and despoil his treasure. And so it came that he spent more and more time in the vicinity of his father's last home, and less and less with the tribe. Presently, the members of his little community began to suffer on account of his neglect, for disputes and quarrels constantly arose which only the king might settle peaceably. At last, some of the older apes spoke to Tarzan on the subject, and for a month thereafter he remained constantly with the tribe. The duties of kingship among the anthropoids are not many or arduous. 
In the afternoon comes Thaka, possibly, to complain that old Mongo has stolen his new wife. Then must Tarzan summon all before him, and if he finds that the wife prefers her new lord, he commands that matters remain as they are, or possibly that Mongo give Thaka one of his daughters in exchange. Whatever his decision, the apes accept it as final, and return to their occupations, satisfied. Then comes Tonna, shrieking and holding tight her side from which blood is streaming. Gunto, her husband, has cruelly bitten her, and, Gunto summoned, says that Tonna is lazy, and will not bring him nuts and beetles, or scratches back for him. So, Tarzan scolds them both, and threatens Gunto with the taste of death-bearing slivers, if he abuses Tonna further, and Tonna, for her part, is compelled to promise better attention to her wifely duties. And so it goes... Little family differences, for the most part, which, if left unsettled, would result finally in greater factional strife and the eventual dismemberment of the tribe. But Tarzan tired of it, as he found that kingship meant the curtailment of his liberty. He longed for the little cabin in the sun-kissed sea, for the cool interior of the well-built house, and for the never-ending wonders of the many books. As he had grown older, he found that he had grown away from his people. Their interests and his were far removed— they had not kept pace with him, nor could they understand aught of the many strange and wonderful dreams that passed through the active brain of the human king. So limited was their vocabulary, that Tarzan could not even talk with them of the many new truths, and the great fields of thought that his reading had opened up before his longing eyes, or make known ambitions which stirred his soul. Among the tribe, he no longer had friends as of old. A little child may find companionship in many strange and simple creatures, but to a grown man, there must be some semblance of equality in intellect as a basis for agreeable association. Had Kayla lived, Tarzan would have sacrificed all else to remain near her, but now that she was dead, and the playful friends of his childhood grown into fierce and surly brutes, he felt that he much preferred the peace and solitude of his cabin to the irksome duties of leadership amongst a horde of wild beasts. The hatred and jealousy of Turkoz, son of Tublat, did much to counteract the effect of Tarzan's desire to renounce his kingship among the apes. For, stubborn young Englishman that he was, he could not bring himself to retreat in the face of so malignant an enemy. That Turkoz would be chosen leader in his stead he knew full well, for time and again the ferocious brute had established his claim to physical supremacy over the few bull apes who dared resent his savage bullying. Tarzan would have liked to subdue the ugly beasts without recourse to knife or arrows. So much had his great strength and agility increased in the period following his maturity that he had come to believe that he might master the redoubtable Turkos in hand-to-hand -hand fight were it not for the terrible advantage the anthropoid's huge fighting fangs gave him over the poorly armed Tarzan. The entire matter was taken out of Tarzan's hands one day by force of circumstances, and his future left open to him so that he might go or stay without any stain upon his savage reputation. It happened thus. The tribe was feeding quietly, spread over a considerable area, when a great screaming arose some distance east of where Tarzan lay upon his belly, beside a limpid brook, attempting to catch an elusive fish in his quick brown hands. With one accord, the tribe swung rapidly toward the frightened cries, and there found Turkoz holding an old female by the hair and beating her unmercifully with his great hands. As Tarzan approached, he raised his hand aloft for Turkos to desist, for the female was not his, but belonged to a poor old ape whose fighting days were long over, and who, therefore, could not protect his family. 
Turkholz knew that it was against the laws of his kind to strike this woman of another, but being a bully, he had taken advantage of the weakness of the female's husband to chastise her because she had refused to give up to him a tender young rodent she had captured. When Turkholz saw Tarzan approaching without his arrows, he continued to belabor the poor woman in a studied effort to affront his hated chieftain. Tarzan did not repeat his warning signal, but instead rushed bodily upon the waiting Turkholz. Never had the ape-man fought so terrible a battle since that long-gone day when Bolgani, the great king gorilla, had so horribly manhandled him as the new-found knife had, by accident, pricked the savage heart. Tarzan's knife at the present occasion but barely offset the gleaming fangs of Turkos, and what little advantage the ape had of the man in brute strength was almost balanced by the latter's wonderful quickness and agility. In the sum total of their points, however, the anthropoid had a shade the better of the battle, and had there been no other personal attribute to influence the final outcome, Tarzan of the apes, the young Lord Greystoke, would have died as he had lived, an unknown savage beast in equatorial Africa. But there was that which had raised him far above his fellows of the jungle, that little spark which spells the whole vast difference between man and brute, reason. This it was which saved him from death beneath the iron muscles and tearing fangs of Turkos. Scarcely had they fought a dozen seconds, ere they were rolling upon the ground, striking, tearing, and rending, two great savage beasts battling to the death. Turkos had a dozen knife wounds to head and breast, and Tarzan was torn and bleeding, his scalp in one place half torn from his head, so that a great piece hung down over one eye, obstructing his vision. But so far, the young Englishman had been able to keep those horrible fangs from his jugular, and now, as they fought less fiercely for a moment to regain their breath, Tarzan formed a cunning plan. He would work his way to the other's back, and clinging there with tooth and nail, drive his knife home until Turkos was no more. The maneuver was accomplished more easily than he had hoped, for the stupid beast, not knowing what Tarzan was attempting, made no particular effort to prevent the accomplishment of the design. But when finally he realized that his antagonist was fastened to him, where his teeth and fists alike were useless against him, Turkos hurled himself about upon the ground so violently that Tarzan could but cling desperately to the leaping, turning, twisting body, and ere he had struck a blow, the knife was hurled from his hand by heavy impact against the earth, and Tarzan found himself defenseless. During the rolling and squirming of the next few minutes, Tarzan's hold was loosened a dozen times, until finally, an accidental circumstance of those swift and ever-changing evolutions gave him a new hold with his right hand, which he realized was absolutely unassailable. His arm was passed beneath Turkos's arm from behind, and his hand and forearm encircled the back of Turkos's neck. It was the half-Nelson of modern wrestling, which the untaught ape-man had stumbled upon, but superior reason showed him in an instant the value of the thing he had discovered. It was a difference to him between life and death. And so he struggled to encompass a similar hold with the left hand, and in a few moments Turkos's bull-neck was creaking beneath a full Nelson. There was no more lunging about now. The two lay perfectly still upon the ground, Tarzan upon Turkos's back. Slowly, the bullet head of the ape was being forced lower and lower upon his chest. Tarzan knew what the result would be, and in an instant the neck would break. Then there came to Turkos's rescue the same thing that had put him in those sore straits, a man's reasoning power. If I kill him, thought Tarzan, what advantage will it be to me? Will it not rob the tribe of a great fighter? And if Turkos be dead, he will know nothing of my supremacy, while alive, he will ever be an example to the other apes. Ka-goda, hissed Tarzan in Terzok's ear, which, in ape tongue, means freely translated, Do you surrender, 
For a moment, there was no reply, and Tarzan added a few more ounces of pressure, which elicited a horrified shriek of pain from the great beast. Kagoda, repeated Tarzan. Kagoda, cried Terzok. Listen, said Tarzan, easing up a trifle, but not releasing his hold. I am Tarzan, king of the apes, mighty hunter, mighty fighter. In all the jungle, there is none so great. You have said Kagoda to me. All the tribe have heard. Quarrel no more with your king or your people, for next time I shall kill you. Do you understand? Huh? Assented Turkaz. And are you satisfied? Huh? Said the ape. Tarzan led him up, and in a few minutes all were back at their vocations, as though naught had occurred to mar the tranquility of their primeval forest haunts. But deep in the mind of the apes was rooted the conviction that Tarzan was a mighty fighter and a strange creature. Strange, because he had had in his power to kill his enemy, but had allowed him to live unharmed. That afternoon, as the tribe came together, as was their wont before darkness settled on the jungle, Tarzan, his wounds washed in the waters of the stream, called the old males about him. "'You have seen today that Tarzan of the apes is the greatest among you,' he said. Huh? They replied with one voice. Tarzan is great. Tarzan, he continued, is not an ape. He is not like his people. His ways are not their ways. And so Tarzan is going back to the lair of his own kind by the waters of the great lake, which has no farther shore. You must choose another to rule you, for Tarzan will not return. And thus, young Lord Greystoke took the first step toward the goal which he had set, the finding of other white men like himself. All right, thank you guys so much for listening today. Really appreciate you downloading the podcast. I mentioned this before and haven't gotten a whole lot of response, but it seems like we've uh, grown our membership of listeners uh, quite a bit in the last several weeks, so I thought I'd throw it out there again. If you or anybody that you know is interested in helping me with editing the podcast, that would be fantastic. It's not my forte, so getting somebody on board to uh, join the team and help me doing that would be amazing. If they want to volunteer, great. Uh, If you don't know anybody or um, you want to help me reach that goal of getting an editor, you can go ahead and click the link below about supporting the podcast. And if you donate toward the podcast, it'll go toward me hiring an editor, which will result in me being able to put out more content. So if you enjoy the audiobooks, but there's just not enough of them, then uh, go ahead and do that. And it'll free up a ton of time for me to be able to narrate more audiobooks for you and get you more awesome content. But if you don't feel like doing either of those, no worries. Like I said, the biggest thing you can do to help the podcast is just tell somebody about it. So if you don't want to do both either of those things, just do me a favor. Tell somebody about the podcast. Thanks so much for listening today, and we'll catch you next time. Don't worry, you aren't the only one. You aren't the only business that needs help. You aren't the only person that has a hard time finding the right help at the right price. This is where Business Bloodline becomes your bloodline to temporary and permanent staffing. Business Bloodline specializes in hiring internet workers to creatively solve problems for your business. 
Business Bloodline does all the vetting and only delivers candidates that make sense for your needs and at a cost that you can afford. But 60 seconds isn't enough for me to tell you why hiring through Business Bloodline is safer, cheaper, and less time consuming. We would rather show you. To get more information or a business consultation, visit businessbloodline.com. If the job can be done on a computer, Business Bloodline can find a match. Visit businessbloodline.com and tell them that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get 10% off your first hire. Remember to mention that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get that 10% off. Businessbloodline.com